May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. One of my favorite bands from high school and college, the Talking Heads. Any Talking Heads fans in here right now? All right, not bad. Their seminal 1979 record, Fear of Music, includes a a collection of songs, each of which is titled for and revolves around a single word. Paper, music, air. One of them is called Heaven. And in the song Heaven, the band sings of heaven as though it were a fabulous bar that everybody is trying to get into. This makes a certain amount of sense because Talking Heads were a rock band and they spent all of their time in nightclubs and bars playing music. The band in heaven, they say, they play my favorite song. They play it once again. They play it all night long. This illustration tells us something about the way that we construct for ourselves images of what heaven is like and how to get there on the basis of what we already know and what we already desire for ourselves. In the Gospel from John this morning, Jesus tells his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for us and that in his Father's house there are many rooms. This imagery has been used to construct an image of what heaven is like as though it were a giant castle or even like a neighborhood full of giant houses, one of which will be yours someday. There's even a website I once found that shows pictures of like mansions saying, this is the house you can expect to live in when when you go to heaven. So we read stories like this from scripture and we create for ourselves a narrative about what heaven is like and how we can get there, preferably by the shortest possible route. The reason that we do this is because we've been taught to. The church for centuries has characterized Christian discipleship as basically an effort to try to comprehend what heaven is like and how we can get there. If we follow the talking heads analogy a little bit, heaven is a nightclub and there's a line to get in and at the velvet rope there's a bouncer and his name is St. Peter. But because we're friends with Jesus, who's the DJ, our name is on the guest list, so we can cut to the front of the line and get right in. There are all sorts of versions of how Christians do this, where they begin contemplating the demands placed on us as disciples of Jesus and start to conclude that, well, because God revealed himself to us in a special way in Jesus, and because we are followers of Jesus, we have some privileged access to this place we call heaven. Jesus is going ahead of us to prepare a way for us. We we are on the guest list. Our name is on the guest list. We can cut right to the front of the line. We then move from that general declaration to a more specific declaration, typically to conclude that the members of our specific denomination are the ones whose names are on the guest list to the exclusion of those other Christians who are doing it wrong. And ultimately, most of us end up in a place where when we imagine what heaven is like and how we get there, we think heaven is basically the best place that we can imagine, and it's reserved for us and the people that we want to see, and nobody else. There's a million jokes about this and about how it all goes wrong. 
But the real problem with this way of thinking is that it completely flies in the face of everything Jesus says about what it really means to be his disciple. When he says to his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for us and that he is the way and the truth and the life, he's saying these things at the Last Supper. He's saying these things on the night that he's going to get arrested and handed over to the authorities and tried and tortured and executed. And he knows this. So when he says to his disciples, I am the way, that's what he's talking about. The way that leads to the Father is the way of courage in the face of injustice, the way of forgiveness in the face of cruelty. That's the way that he demonstrates for us and shows us, and it leads to life. And like Philip, we're saying, well, if you would just show us the Father, then we might follow you. And he says, you've been with me all this time, so I think you know what it means. He then proceeds to wash his disciples' feet and be handed over to the authorities. So we have to remember that when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's talking about that in the context of his imminent suffering and death. So the way that leads to the Father for us has something to do with trusting that God is with us even when our lives include experiences of suffering. In our version of things, the shortcut to heaven, we like to think, well, I get to cut to the front of the line because then I don't have to suffer waiting in line or whatever else we'd like to avoid. That's human nature. But Jesus is asking us to do something different. Jesus is asking us to trust that God is actually with us when our lives are full of suffering. And I think we actually have these experiences all the time. But because we've been so conditioned in a narrative in which we have privileged access to heaven, where we and all our best friends get to spend time forever to the exclusion of those people we don't like, um, we don't recognize these experiences where God is with us in our struggles. But those, I think, are what Jesus is talking about. And I have one experience from my recent life that I want to share with you that helps confirm this for me. Last Saturday, not just yesterday, but the week before, I participated in a walkathon fundraiser for St. Dorothy's Rest up in Sonoma County. Many of you supported me and my family in this effort, and I'm very grateful for your generous support. St. Dorothy's is a summer camp that's owned and run by the Diocese of California, and they've been operating for about 112 or 113 years. And still, every summer, what they do is they offer two weeks where they bring children who are diagnosed with leukemia or another form of cancer, and children and teens who have been recipients of an organ transplant and who, as a result, whose health is very compromised. They bring those children to camp at at St. Dorothy's so that they can have the experience of community in the Redwoods for a week every summer at no cost to them. So St. Dorothy's does a bunch of fundraisers every year to make it possible for those children to have that experience, and it changes lives. So I and my family joined the Walkathon fundraiser to help raise money for those scholarships. And at first I thought it was a 10-mile walk, and I thought that me and my 10-year-old son Elijah could probably do all 10 miles. And then I heard that it was a 12-mile walk, and I was like, "Eh, he's done 10 before, he can do 12. By the end of the day, I discovered that we walked 14 miles, which for a 10-year-old is quite a stretch. For a 42-year-old, it was quite a stretch. 
For my wife and my seven-year-old, two miles was enough. <laughs> my younger son, Declan, has zero body fat, so when his last calorie evaporates, he just becomes useless. So he walked to the first rest stop where they had shuttles waiting for people who were ready to go back at that point, and Elijah and I carried on. And we carried on in good spirits and with plenty of energy, but as you know, when you're walking mile after mile, at some point your reserves are depleted and you've got to find some other way to just keep going. That's hard enough when you're a full-grown, fit adult, but when you're 10 years old and not used to doing anything like that, it can be a somewhat shocking experience. At about mile six, Elijah was in the full throes of that shocking experience. <laughs> and all of his chatter and talk and telling me endless details about all his Pokemon cards subsided. And recognizing the signs of his fatigue, I tried to keep him interested by asking him questions about stuff, about his life, about Pokemon, which I never do. <laughs> And his answers became shorter and shorter until finally <clears throat> he was just responding to my questions with basically monosyllabic grunts. And I knew that we were in rough shape because he's generally a very amiable, cheerful person. So he, doesn't, he wasn't faking it. I was a little bit desperate because I thought I'd made a mistake. We were miles away from the next rest stop and miles beyond the one that we'd left before, so we were in the middle, all alone on this trail, and we had enough water and we had some snacks, but he was in pretty bad shape and I wasn't really sure what to do. And I thought I might have made a mistake bringing him on this walk. So I started to feel a little concerned for him and then for myself as his parent. And so it, it occurred to me that we'd already talked about why we were doing this walk. And so sort of as a last resort, I reminded him about the purpose of our walk to contextualize the difficulty of it in that moment. And I said, remember, Elijah, we're doing this walk for a reason. And he said, yeah, all those kids who are coming to camp this summer. He said, I'm sorry. He said, they can't walk, so we have to walk for them. And then he took my hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> And we didn't say another word. And the two of us just walked in silence together until we came to the next rest stop. A couple of times he had to stop and just lean on me until he found some strength to keep going. And we got to the rest stop, and there were M&Ms. <laughs> so we refilled our water bottles, and he ate a giant bag of M&Ms. And we sat in the shade, and he poked his stick in the dirt, and eventually he said, okay, I'm ready to keep going. And that was the eight-mile mark. And we kept going, and we went to the 10-mile mark where everybody else was camped out waiting for the shuttle. And he turned to me and he said, let's finish. So we walked what I thought was going to be two more miles, <laughs> turned out to be four, up the Sonoma Coast crest and down to the ocean on the other side to the Shell Beach parking lot where there was a shuttle waiting for us. We were the last people in. Uh, just the two of us, and the guy who works for St. Dorothy's, who was basically the tail of the hike. So the, we got in the shuttle, we drove back to camp, and the day was over. There are many things about that experience that I could say were like an experience of heaven. The sense of community, the sense of participating in something that benefits others, the beauty of the majestic riparian meadows that we walked through, 
the, the glory of the redwood groves with these stands of fairy circle redwood trees reaching up to the sky. Elijah's own excitement about those trees and their history and about the Native Americans who lived in that landscape for which one of those trails is named and about which he learned all throughout his fourth grade year and was able to tell me everything about their lives and the landscape that they lived in and which we were walking in. And, uh, needless to say, the feeling of exuberation and joy when we finally crested that last ridge and could see the ocean and the trail leading down to it, and we knew we were in the home stretch, and Elijah mostly running that last mile, singing to himself, she'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. But the place on the trail where we were at bottom, where he had to lean on me and I, frankly, had to lean on him, is the place that I think is what Jesus is talking about when he says he is the way and the truth and the life. The experience that we had of placing ourselves in the context of those other children's lives and of all the many thousands of feet that have walked that trail for a hundred years to support this camp that makes it possible for children with a terminal diagnosis to experience the blessing of Christian community one week a year. Knowing that we were on that walk and had nothing but each other to hold on to and keep going, that was where God came and met us. That was where Jesus walked with us. And we held on to each other's hand and we found a place that looks to me like the kingdom of heaven. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus, who walks with us and leads us in the way and the truth and the life that lead to the Father. Amen.